midst of a series of messages on the seven letters to the seven churches, and today we are dealing with the church at Sardis. Uh, the letter is recorded for us in Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. I trust that uh, many of you are continuing to think about these messages and these letters in your midweek Bible studies. And uh, we look forward to conversations about them in cross-training as well. So uh, God bless you as you uh, continue on in these messages. Perhaps it would be all right if, if I uh, just said a quick word of prayer as uh, we begin our sermon. Thank you, Lord, for the precious time of worship we've just experienced. And for the very clear message of the gospel that we have sung today, that our sins are forgiven and that you pursue us. As, uh, as one writer has written, the hound of heaven has come after us. And uh, we thank you, Lord, that even as you have freely given us the Lord Jesus Christ, how will you not also freely give us all things? And so, Lord, we're just grateful for all you've done for us. And I pray now that as uh, we open your word, we think about it, we try to apply it to our own lives and the life of our church, we depend on you for application. Holy Spirit, please be our teacher. Guard us from anything that is not from you. But what is from you, may it find fertile ground in our hearts, take root and grow, and produce fruit that lasts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I was reading this week of a fictitious church testimony. Um, by way of introduction, let me read it for you. Uh, you find a seat for the service anticipating a blessing. Sunlight filtered by stained glass colors the atmosphere. The church bulletin has a full state of activities listed for the coming week, and extra inserts tumble out announcing one big event after another. The included treasurer's report is the first sign that all is not as it appears, for the church's financial status is tens of thousands behind what had been budgeted. As you contemplate the meaning of that, the service starts. You tell yourself, remember, you're here to be encouraged. The invocation, the robed choir, the scripture reading, the offering, the special music proceed with clockwork precision, but without much excitement or joy. The whole atmosphere feels bland. Despite the beaming smile of the worship leader and his exhortations to sing as if you mean it. Well, um, the robed, distinguished looking preacher proceeds to spend 20 long minutes on a rather short text. His elocution and diction were impeccable, but his ideas are cold and impenetrable. You wait for some sign, some spark of inspiration that explains the church's grand reputation, but none appears. You look around the sanctuary and you observe the well-behaved congregation. They seem complicit. No one protesting the obvious lack of spiritual passion. They've been lulled to sleep by a powerless Christianity. You wonder, how long until the benediction... How quickly can I get out of here and do something profitable with my day? Well, the service ends perfectly on time, the only miracle you witness. And as you stand outside, you realize the constraint you felt inside. 
Standing in the sunshine, you feel revived, glad the experience is over. Churches that are alive in name only do that to you. Whoa. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. See if you see any signs of what I just read in Jesus' letter to the church of Sardis. Revelation chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I know your deeds, but you are dead. I think those are probably the most pessimistic words ever uttered about a local church. Many church consultants will agree that a dying church doesn't really know it's dying. Outwardly, it has lots of activity, but inwardly there is a declining spiritual vitality. That's what's happening here at Sardis. Jesus pronounced them, you might as well be dead. Now, my intention this morning for this message is for us to learn how we can avoid being like this church. Because what I'd like to suggest to you is this. No church should be a dying church. A dying church is an oxymoron. You know what an oxymoron is? Two words are put together that are opposite in in individual meaning, but when they're put together, they have a message, kind of like jumbo shrimp. Or, this coffee is awful good. Um, Apple tech support. Uh, Remember Buzz Lightyear in Toy Story? Remember what he said? To infinity! And beyond, <laughs> that's, that's an oxymoron. <clears throat> Adult male. <laughs> Ooh. Now I found some for women, um, but I thought better of it. <laughs> I don't want wise pastor to be an oxymoron. <laughs> Here's something relevant for our church and for this message. Busy doing nothing. See, that's a symptom of a church that's dying. 
And it's what was going on here at Sardis. No church should be a dying church. There are two indications that a church is dying that Jesus reminds us of in his letter to this church at Sardis. The first one is found in verse 1, and I call it non-prioritized activity. Non-prioritized activity. Activity with no priority. Verse 1, I know your deeds. Now, they're busy. They've got a lot going on in their schedule. Um, They look like they're alive. Now, I want to be clear. There's nothing wrong with activity in a local church. In fact, you remember that last spring when I gave my series of messages on the seven deadly sins, one of them was laziness. Um, People who are lazy have a hard time getting started. They have a hard time uh, finishing what they start. And they always find excuses to justify their inactivity. And the point of that message was that rather than being lazy, we need to have a focus so that focus motivates us to be active. And that focus, I suggested, was living for the purpose of glorifying God, of making much of God. And so if your activity is all about making much of God, being focused on God, laziness could never come into our lives. We will be active for him. But it requires priority. And if our activity is not prioritized, we could be active and busy and accomplish nothing for God. So, what is prioritized activity? Well, for this I'd like to remind us of the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3. And I'd like us to think about verses 13 and 14. Now, chapters 1 and 2 of Mark's Gospel describe Jesus kind of um, coming on the scene and uh, his, his first um, account of Jesus' activity was a whirlwind of activity. I mean, he would talk with people, he would heal the sick, he would preach, cast out demons. And then notice what happens in chapter 3, begin with verse 13. Jesus went up on the mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve that they might be with him. And then he sent them out to preach. Now, notice Jesus prioritized the activities of the disciples. First priority was be with him. And then he sent them to preach, to spread the gospel and promote his agenda. The order, be with Jesus. Not Jesus be with me. Not, oh Lord, please be with me. No. First priority Jesus had, he wanted his disciples to be with him. And once they were with him, then he sent them out to preach and to advance his agenda. So let's look a little bit more closely at these two priorities. First of all, be with him. It's possible to be so busy with activities attempting to serve God that we leave him out. 
we just leave him out. Uh, and if we leave him out, we're just busy. We can be busy doing things for God in the name of God, but actually accomplish nothing for God if we're just busy. John Ortberg, maybe some of you have read some of his work. He writes on the spiritual disciplines in his book called The Life You've Always Wanted. He writes in chapter 5 of that book of his own personal testimony of where he kind of felt like he was just just too busy. So he called up a mentor and, and said, what's your advice to me? And the mentor said to him, um, eliminate hurry from your life. Eliminate hurry from your life. And uh, Pastor Orberg said, oh, that's really good advice. What else? His mentor said, there isn't anything else. Eliminate hurry from your life. That's, it's so American for us to hurry, isn't it? You know what one of our national monuments is? Mount Rushmore. <laughs> isn't that America? <laughs> Fast food. That's America. Now it can be even faster. They'll deliver it to your door. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule. It's supposed to be a compliment. Be with me, Jesus said. Be with me. Slow down. Churches that are dying hurry with programs rather than lingering in prayer. Churches that are dying hurry through life, exhausted by their own efforts, but they neglect the empowerment and the power of the Holy Spirit. Being with Jesus, loving Jesus, enjoying Jesus, taking a drink from Jesus. Do you love being with Jesus? Does that define our church, if it does, we're a healthy church. That's the first priority. Jesus called his disciples to be with him. Second, Jesus told them, then promote his agenda. Then promote his agenda. Not our agenda. His agenda. Jesus gathered the disciples and then he taught them. And they taught them his agenda. And the disciples went out and the twelve became the seventy. And what did the twelve do with the seventy? They brought the seventy to be with Jesus. And then the seventy went out and they found the one hundred and twenty. And they brought the one hundred and twenty to be with Jesus. And then they went out and they promoted the gospel some more. See, dying churches spend most of their time and money on themselves. Dying churches refuse to allow themselves to get involved in the community. In fact, sometimes the community doesn't even know they exist. And if, in fact, they finally do die... Nobody notices. 
See, in a dying church, there may be activity, but there is no priority. They may work hard, but Jesus is nowhere to be found. It's possible to be working hard, but have no idea of what's being accomplished. But churches that are alive have a clear mission, a clear vision, clear goals, clear objectives. Churches that are alive promote Jesus' agenda like our worship did today. Wasn't it wonderful to sing songs about the gospel, about the blood of Jesus, about forgiveness of Jesus, about the grace of Jesus? See, that's, that's signs of life. That's the right priority. Let's never, ever lose that priority. Be with Jesus and then promote his agenda. Secondly, Jesus outlines a symptom of a dying church and that it lives in the past. The dying church lives in the past. Jesus said, verse 1, I know your reputation. <laughs> I, know your rep- I know what you're known for for the past. Let's focus on that word reputation. Most of us have memories of what it's like to um, love our spouse then. Uh, Most of us can remember what it's like to be healthy and strong then. Most of us know what it's like to have fun and be productive then. That's our reputation. Um, I love to fish for muskies, you know, that big fish, muskies, you know. Uh, I've caught lots of muskies then. Didn't catch any this year. But, you know, the ones I caught last year, they're getting bigger every year. (laughs) I play the trombone. Uh, Not very well, but the older I get, the better I was. That's reputation. That's the past. That's living in the past. When our search team was putting together um, some statements to define our church, um, I, was, I was looking for some examples, and I found an example of a, of a mission statement. <laughs> Tell me if you think this is a church that's alive or a church that's dying. We will embrace and develop the ministry of the 1950s, just in case that decade comes around again. <laughs> That's a dying church. Yeah, a dead one. You see, the church at Sardis was busy, but they, they had no priority, and they lived in the past. So what can we learn from this church about how we can avoid falling into that trap? Well, Jesus gives them three commands. Actually, there's five commands in these verses, but I'm going to round them into three. And I'm going to suggest three things that we can do to avoid being like a dying church. First, continually evaluate. Verse two. Jesus says specifically, wake up. You guys, wake up. Now, literally, this word means be alert, be watchful, demonstrate that you are watchful. Now, this is particularly interesting with this particular church because the city of Sardis was constructed on um, a big hill and, and 
around three sides of this hill was a 150-foot vertical rock wall. And they were built right out to the edge of this, this, this cliff. So they were protected on three sides, and then the other side was a hill coming up it. And so if an enemy ever wanted to come and attack them, they could see them a long ways off because they had to climb up this hill. And they were pretty situated pretty well. And so they got really secure in their defense. And they thought, hey, we're, we're really situated well. We can relax. Well, there are two cases that history tells us in 546 B.C., a Persian soldier scaled up the perpendicular wall, made its way to the doors of the gates of the city, and opened up the gates of the city. And the Persian army just came right in and sacked the city. They didn't watch. They got complacent. You'd think they'd learn from that, but 300 years later in 214 B.C., uh, the army Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus III of Syria, they did the same thing. Another soldier came and scaled up the wall and went inside the city and opened up the gates. And this Syrian army came and sacked the city. What happened? They thought, oh, things are going really great. We're just fine. We're protected by this wall. Jesus said, Wake up. <laughs> Wake up. Evaluate what you're doing. Look around and see if it's going as well as you think it's going. Notice that Jesus doesn't mention any specific hardship experienced by this church. Ephesus had hardship. They did battle with false teachers. Smyrna had afflictions and poverty due to persecution. Pergamum lived in the city where Satan lived and there were those who were martyred. But in Sardis, no problems. Archaeologists have uncovered one of the largest Jewish temples ever excavated. Yet there was no Jewish persecution of the Christians. Jesus said, Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that's how their ancestors tested, treated the false prophets. Speaking well. Of the false prophets. See, they were doing nothing to make people take notice of them. They were just fine with that. You see, churches fall into a trap of coasting, of getting comfortable, getting apathetic. Jesus says to this church, don't just stand still, wake up, evaluate. An individual or a church, if not moving forward, in reality is moving backward, isn't it? Let me give you two suggestions on how to evaluate. First one, consider our shape. Now, in our bulletin on the cross-training insert, um, I explain a little bit more of this idea of shape. This is an acronym that discusses our spiritual gifts, the harder passion, our abilities, our personality, and our experiences. And all five of those things work together to determine what the shape of our church is. And I think a local church encapsulates a shape. It's a unique shape. Our shape is not the same as any other church around in the North Woods. It's our shape, our spiritual giftedness, 
our heart or passions, our abilities and talents that we have, lots of abilities and talents in this congregation. What is our personality? Who are we? What's it like to be our church? What experiences have we had along the way that we can learn from? What have we been through? What have the people in our church been through? How does that contribute to our experiences? and How can we use those experiences to move forward? Every church is unique in itself, and, and we have a shape, and it's important to continually look at our shape and evaluate our shape. And then I'd like to also suggest, secondly, answer this question. Are we moving forward in advancing our mission so that it requires the power of God to accomplish it? Have you ever thought about that? Do we really need God to do what we're doing? Or can we do it ourselves? Are we taking a risk that's so bold that will fail unless God is in it? I love that question. I ask myself that question all the time. Do we really need God to do what we're doing? You know, it's said that God never gives you more than you can handle. You ever heard that? I think that's a slogan of a dying church. Because God always gives us more than we can handle. So that we depend on him. So that we depend on him. So the first thing we need to do to keep from being a dying church is to continually evaluate. Second, strengthen spiritual vitality, verse 2. Jesus says, strengthen what remains and is about to die. Even though Jesus declared this church dead, apparently there was somewhere there was, there was some life. And I've tried to think of a way to understand this. Most, a lot of commentators just think this is a paradox. But I've thought of maybe like an organ transplant. You know, you can take a person who's dead, but if they're an organ donor, which I am on my driver's license, um, they could take my heart and transplant it in someone else's heart, and my heart will come back alive again. And I think, I think that's what Jesus may be saying to this church. There are some of you here that, Maybe if we just surround you with enough life that you'll, you'll come back to life again. And I think that's how we can avoid ever becoming a dying church. Look for where God is blessing. And then fan the flames. Fan it into a, a, a wildfire. <laughs> focus our attention on what's living and where there's life and focus on that. And I think, I think we can avoid ever being a dying church. Verse 4, Jesus says, You have a few people in Sardis who have never soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. Why? Because they are the ones where there is life. So look for life. Look for, look for people that are excited about something. Look for groups of people that are doing really good things. And then fan the flames and strengthen them. Move them forward and find ways to make them better and greater and more effective. That will keep us ever from being a dying church. And then third, not only continually evaluate, not only strengthen what already exists, but verse 3, 
maintain the priority of the gospel. This is so fundamental. This is, this is a football. <laughs> this is so basic. Jesus said, verse 3, Remember what you have received and heard. Remember what you've received and heard. The gospel. If we focus on the gospel, we'll never be a dying church. Uh, I'm, as I drive, I listen to the um, biography of Benjamin Franklin. Um, you know, Benjamin Franklin was a rascal. <laughs> I mean, he was, he was morally a rascal. But he had some pretty hard views on religion as well. And he was in contact with some of the, uh, uh, the great um, Puritan preachers, Jonathan Edwards and and George Whitfield, and he rejected their message of salvation comes by grace through faith because he was committed to virtue, frugality, and industry. That was Ben Franklin. He says in Poor Richard's Almanac, remember this? God helps those. See, that was, that's not the gospel. The gospel tells us that no matter how virtuous we are, no matter how industrious we are, no matter how hardworking we are, we will fall short. And when we fall short, we'll stand before God and he's going to ask us about the things where we fell short. You ever heard a judge in a trial ask you what you did well? (laughs) No. The judge in a trial always says, what are the charges of where you failed? And the gospel tells us that it's really not not all that 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 good news is that you are guilty, but then there's grace. And grace tells us it's not what we do. Grace is what has been done, accomplished, finished. That's what Jesus said. It is finished. That's the gospel. Even though we fall short, Jesus did something to make it better. His blood, his righteousness, which we've sung about today. And we receive that grace as a gift by faith. Jesus says to this church, hold it fast. Hold on to the grace that you've received by faith. But, you know, even the best of us will fall off the grace wagon once in a while, won't we? Well, you know, John says, you know, I write these things to you, First John chapter 2, so that you will not sin. But if you do, if you do, what? We have an advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ. So then he gives what I think is a major theme in the Bible, repent. Which is not a dirty word. It's a, it's a really good news word. And we can joyfully repent because we know that when we do, we will be restored in the fellowship with God. And we can, we can have a, a spring in our step again. And that will keep us from becoming a dying church. Because, beloved, no church 
should be a dying church. Never should we be a dying church. And to make sure we don't continually evaluate, strengthen what is working, maintain the priority in the message of the gospel. And if these principles encapsulate the life of our church, we won't be a dying church. We might be busy, but our activity will be full of life, not death. Jesus concludes this letter to the church at Sardis by saying, as he does with every church, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Pray with me, please. Lord, maybe there's someone here today who really never understood the gospel before. God helps those who help themselves. It's not in the Bible. That's Ben Franklin. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short. But that Jesus Christ took upon himself the punishment that we deserve. And we can receive forgiveness and new life and a declaration of being righteous before him as we place our faith and trust in Christ by faith. So, Lord, I want to ask if there's anybody here today who really isn't sure if they've, if they're really right with God. I pray, Lord, that you would pull them to yourself right now. That you would give them an assurance that if they believe the gospel, if they believe Jesus did what we've been singing about, what the gospel says he did that they would just believe. They don't have to stand up and come forward. They don't even have to raise their hand. Lord, work in their heart that they believe. And if that's you, just pray a simple prayer like this. Lord Jesus, I realize that I'm a sinner and that I fall short and that I need to be forgiven. So based on the truth of what I've heard today, that I've sung today that Jesus pursued me. He loved me. He paid my penalty. And so I receive the gift of forgiveness and the hope of eternal life in him. Lord, I believe. Help me to grow and to mature into what you want me to be as a follower of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray for our church. I pray that we would continue to be focused on the right priorities and that we would promote the mission of Jesus and that you would protect us from ever falling into the trap of being a dying church because no church should be a dying church. We are full of life. I pray, Lord, that that life would, would grow and continue to be effective as we seek to reach our community for Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.